Welcome to the episode 17 of Because of the Times. Last week I visited with Jane Calm, a long-time resident of the Sunshine Coast uh, and an active participant of the community, but most of all, a very gifted somatic therapist and counselor. During our intentional conversations, she shared about her practice and her role in our small Sunshine Coast community. But we also talked about the broader universal topics like societal issues and relationships. I do hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, please tune in to conversation because of the times. Welcome, Jane. Thank you. I was really excited to be here. I feel like we have both the same level of excitement. It just comes from a different source. Mine is about um, talking to you and you are more, I was like, afraid to come through. The anxiety you mentioned? Um, is it fear of... Oh, I have anxiety about speaking publicly? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think that's a pretty common experience of exposing complex feeling spaces to a general public. So I definitely felt some nervousness coming into this, but I also felt a lot of love for my community and for just humanity in general, the Mm -hmm. earth in general. And so wanting to give myself opportunity to speak to what I'm passionate about and what I think really helps and what I have to offer. Yeah. So I'm nervous for sure, but also really excited to share what I've been up to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you've been up to a lot, have you? Relatively, yeah. yeah. I do feel pretty busy and Inverse. inspired by my work. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess it's worth mentioning that I got to experience working with you firsthand. So it's a fair um information to give to anybody who listens that you used to be my counselor (laughs) that's true yeah and so this is a different kind of situation that we meet Mm -hmm. and another another fact is that we do know each other but don't necessarily hang out very much and spend time together so uh knowing that i want to open with 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 this thought Similarly to myself, I'm sure it's always something I say to the people that come to my classes too, that if, you know, it's a common thing. Like if you have a question, you're not sure about something, there's definitely a person who shares the same unknown. So similarly to me being somewhat overwhelmed at times and anxious about how to be present in a today's world, um, in a way that's not radical, right? But at the same time, not completely compliant. How to navigate through the world and how to do it in a way that doesn't, you know, make you lose sleep at night. (laughs) Uh, What can we do on an individual level, having the access to information that we have today? And Uh, knowing potentially anything we want, but at the same time, stay present and calm within our own selves. 
present and calm within our own selves. Well, um, I feel like I would like to explain what I do mm -hmm. uh, in more detail because that is the question that I'm attempting to bring a solution to, a daily practice solution, not a solution that ends the struggle, but that we can meet ourselves in. So uh, especially with this overwhelming access to the traumas of the world that has shown up through the internet. Yeah. It's really overwhelming and intense a lot. Um, so my practice, I am a somatic therapeutic counselor. Um, somatic counseling or somatic work is about, so it's different than traditional talk therapy or clinical therapy, which in my opinion is very focused on the mind and offering solutions and analysis and understanding from a very mental space, which I find very important and is definitely a part of my practice, you know, unraveling the puzzle of our psyches. Mm -hmm. But that seems to only take us so far. And the reason that it only takes us so far is because our bodies are animals. They're not intellectuals. They're not professors. Everyone's actual body is just an animal reacting to the stress of being here. And so you can understand why you're scared and it still comes up with ferocious animal protection or in the other side of it, very intense animal uh, shutdown. So the animal body plays dead or goes into freeze response. Mm -hmm. And so this is all happening in our bodies. So unlike traditional talk therapy, which is focused on the mind, somatic therapy um, brings in the element of the body and the sensations of our fear and our sadness and what is actually happening in the animal body when our feelings are coming up. So instead of just analyzing, we're also in somatic therapy slowing down. And this is the key part slowing down in order to slowly notice our feelings that are moving very quickly and or slowing down and move, move or noticing our feelings that are shutting down mm -hmm. and being able to develop the practice of connecting directly with the sensations of our fears and our sadness and even our joy and creativity directly in the body in order to develop a caring relationship with our own feelings. So uh, the capacity that somatic therapy is attempting to bring in is basically a healthy split of the mind, splitting the mind into the part of you that cares for the parts of you that are scared and sad. So I refer to this healthy split, um, you know, psychological terms it's called differentiation, but I refer to it as the healthy split between the inner initiated adult and the inner child parts, so our feelings. And the reason why somatic therapy is so effective, in my opinion, is because it teaches us the practice of slowing down. Um, it's an absolute fact, and I'm quite sure you'll agree with me, mm -hmm. that you cannot approach fear, you cannot approach a scared animal quickly. It's not going to trust you. It's not going to listen to you. You might have the best advice in the world. You might be the most trusting person in the world. This animal is not going to trust you no matter what, if you don't slow down. Same as a scared child. If you approach them, hey, buddy, it's okay. Like, come on, you don't need to be scared. 
what actually happens to the nervous system of the animal body of the child or the animal is they double down their defense and protection because you're moving quickly. And so the same goes for our own inner space. It is the practice of slowing down, developing right beside the upset, developing the capacity to also have a part of you that is calm, connected, compassionate, and curious, mm -hmm. and able to write in your own body, pay attention to what is happening inside from a space of slowness. And from there, you can develop trust with your own feelings. Mm -hmm. And from there, you the practice is to learn to listen to our own feelings and thereby articulate what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And if you can articulate the complexity of what your feelings are saying, to another person, say your partner, you know, people in your environment that you want to receive care from, well, then there's a greater chance they'll be able to care for you if mm -hmm. you yourself have slowed down and understood your own reactions. So you need to start caring for yourself in the first place. Uh, yes. So it's the practice of becoming, basically, I also call my uh, somatic practice self-parenting. So becoming the parent to your own parts that wasn't there when you were small. Your your parents were not capable of providing you with the care that you needed. And so we become the reaction to that. Our parents weren't capable for whatever reasons, very intricate. Every person has different reasons why their parents were not uh, mm -hmm. able to meet their needs. But now that we're adults, there's no one that's gonna meet your needs but you. There's no one that's gonna be able to articulate what you need, except for you. You're the first responder is how I like to say it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, from that, I feel like there is possibility. Yeah. Yeah. Two questions come to my mind. One, um, it's pretty easy to imagine and even experience what it feels like to be in a fight or flight. Yeah. Right? Especially if you've done any sort of athleticism, I guess, then you all put yourself essentially in that position. Ooh. And then the feeding, the, 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 the calmness, feed and fuck state right are you aware of this feed and fuck yeah like it's like an opposite to fight or flight right so when i'm in this heightened alertness of fight or flight the opposite is to be like oh yeah i'm just chilling i can eat have sex as a as a as a uh, symbol of that you know ultimate being relaxed and in that opposite spectrum right and then you mentioned that in the middle of it you're in a freeze right animals do that and people we are animals yeah, yeah but animals only do that when they can run away mm -hmm. or possibly fight back mm -hmm. and the only thing left for them to do is just freeze mm -hmm. and you can see it in dogs cats that just like cornered in and they just don't know what else to do right do you observe that in in humans absolutely every single one of us because we were babies right. we couldn't flee and we couldn't fight how that how's that freezing of a human manifest itself um some examples of how it manifests mm -hmm. are well right now okay. there's a part of me that wants to shut down and stop talking and run away from you okay. <laughs> um but uh, i would say when uh paid attention to directly from somebody who is not uh showing care so a freeze response can happen when someone questions you from a aroused, you know, fight place. 
care about? How would, we, how would it manifest itself? Say I'm questioning you in a way that you says, you don't know what to do else. You don't, you can't, you know, do any of what you want to do. You can't flee. You can't fight me. You, you're there, but you also can't respond. Right? Sometimes different people, it's different for every person. Okay. They articulate their own freeze response, but it can cause tightening of the throat. So it's not safe to make noise. Um, let me see. Uh, a giving up depression is mm -hmm. a you know perpetuated um, dorsal shutdown where there's no hope. We just just stop moving. Mm -hmm. um, those are two examples that I can think of. Mm, yeah, stage fright is mm -hmm. <laughs> a shutdown freeze response when people are questioned. Would yeah, you say sickness could be manifestation of that. Somebody's so just stuck that they make themselves sick physically. Um, well, part of my belief system and observation in this work is that our emotions are physical. Mm -hmm. You feel anxiety as a sensation, just like you feel stubbing your toe as a sensation. Mm -hmm. um, heartbreak, having your heart broken is very painful on par with having you know a severe injury mm -hmm. it's very very painful that's a physical sensations that are happening in our bodies so yeah mm. so that i kind of forgot the question but that was my answer to no it. the freeze the manifestation of freeze and oh and how it turns into physical uh illness yeah i was explaining this to somebody the other day because they were telling me oh i this is a common uh thing to that i have said to me oh i, I just shove it down and so I say to them, you, you know, ask them to relate that feelings are physical sensations. So if you're shoving physical sensations of your feelings down, you know, where are they going mm -hmm. physically? They are actually going down into mm -hmm. your physical body. They're not just going down into some void in space. They actually live inside of our body. So if we've been pushing down feelings in our bodies, that is a, a concentrated physical symptom that gets more and more dense. And in my opinion, mm -hmm. and this is not allotropic medicine ready, mm -hmm. but in my opinion, that is absolutely connected to why physical illness shows up because the, the, the animal body is screaming for attention and care. And if the only response is to shove down and away, well, then it's going to get more and more acute, the, the screaming for attention. And that can, can I'm not saying it's every single time, yeah. show up as physical uh, pain and, and sickness. Yeah. And so when I'm doing the somatic work where we purposefully slow down our breathing and I uh, guide my clients to enter their own physical body with their eyes closed. So go into their own imagination, down into their physical body. They actually, it's almost like they're sitting down next to their physical sensations and their emotional sensations. And what I've noticed is that, you know, physical discomfort has a, an emotional tie. They're tied together. So when you go down and you pay attention to, you know, your colitis or intestine like oh there's discomfort there if we go slow enough that discomfort in this person's intestines will say something about how they feel emotionally it will be tied to an emotion mm -hmm. and so in this work of slowing down and listening 
that conversation can lead to, it will almost always lead back to our childhoods because our childhoods is, is where we were made basically from zero to seven about is where our patterned responses, our protective responses to fear and anxiety were created. That, that's when we've created our reaction system and then everything else after that is sort of compounded from that original space. So often when we go back into the physical body and go down into the sensations, we'll be taken back to moments in childhood that didn't have regulated connected care. And now that you're an adult, you have the capacity to notice your childhood self with you know, the 360 view of what's going on, that you don't have that capacity when you're small and you can provide for your own physical being what you weren't able to get when you were small. And the magic the miracle and the absolute scientific normacy of this practice is that your psyche does not know the difference between a real life occurrence, an imagination, or a dream at night. So when you take the time to go back to your childhood and you bring in to that memory a regulated connected adult, it's like it happened. Your animal body, your psyche, now no longer remembers you as completely isolated. They now remember, yes, the pain that you, and that's not gonna go away, but they now have, oh, but there's a person here who sees me. There's a person here who's able to uh, regulate with me. And that's what the practice is trying to build. I I'm honestly, Milan, you are a physical trainer and I consider myself an emotional trainer. Mm -hmm. So I'm strengthening the nervous system of my clients to be able to feel the sensations and the memories that are painful and to bring in this connected, um, truly initiated adult response, not the disconnected <laughs> parenting that we almost always have had in this dysfunctional world <laughs> because it's really painful here. So, yeah. yeah. I think over the last few years, I wonder if that's something to do with the work with you. That I think about it. I can totally remember myself being a trainer who would be labeled. When you label me a physical trainer, I have a reaction response inside me right right away. It's like, oh, wait a minute. Uh, but I totally remember myself being what you think I am right now, and I I can see how I've changed over the last probably yeah, like about six years. Last six years into uh, really caring of what the emotional and and mental capacity am I actually touching on when I work with people because it's not just about their bodies at all no yeah and it's it's a hard sell for sure for a lot of people it's they still come and expect that kind of service right when it's like oh you're a physical trainer you're you know mental and that digression is becoming longer and longer i don't want to talk about it too much the point is that i do uh it's funny how i i just realized that right now uh that, I, let me let me rephrase yeah. I, I want to know that i'm catching what you're saying yeah so when i said that you're a physical trainer because yeah. you own a gym no? yeah yeah i yeah, know yeah. it's absolutely accurate it's, yeah. it is yeah, accurate yeah, but yeah. what i think i hear you saying is that you don't consider yourself just there for people's bodies anymore. Yeah, yeah. you're also there for yeah. caring for their emotions yeah. as yeah. well yeah and that when people come to you just for the purely physical, it's a bit of a rewiring to have. You the can't just dump it on people. You're here to like change your life in <gasps> an emotional and mental way. Like I can't just say that to anybody that just starts coming. It's like, okay, well, who's that guy? Or why is he claiming that he's going to blah, 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 you know, like I'm aware of that. So, so yeah, 
I don't know. Maybe that's why I resonate with what you do more because I do, and especially because I learned so much from you. But um, uh, I had a question when you were talking about um, the, on an individual um, on an individual level, when somebody comes to see you and listens to how, because anybody can do somatic therapy, right? Would you say that? Let anybody come and try it. Yeah, sure. Right? Yeah. But it's not for everybody, would you agree? Nothing is for everybody. Right? So it's not for everybody, but your your mission in life is to use that as a tool for betterment of individuals, right? Yes, betterment of individuals. And I do think that this capacity to slow down and listen from a more grounded, uh, appropriately adult place, mm-hmm. uh, using our wise self to communicate will definitely strengthen our family systems Mm -hmm. and thereby our community systems and we'll be able to make you know really uh yeah (laughs) so what would you say say a person i can totally hear somebody saying ah somatic therapy is not for me right and what would you say they're missing what are they not seeing or what is stopping them from actually being open to it oh well (laughs) I do feel, and I often tell my clients this, this work is very challenging. It's very difficult. It's very painful to pay attention to your pain on purpose. That's like, sounds counterintuitive. Why would I pay attention to what feels awful? So uh, I often tell my clients to cheer them on. Uh, The very realistic statement that doing this work is something uh, that even the strongest muscle men, mm-hmm. military, like I can face death head on. They run screaming from their own childhood emotions. They will not look. Uh, and so that is uh, some reason why it might not land to somebody that it feels counterintuitive to slow down and pay attention to your pain. Uh, it can seem like, well, now I'm just going to have more pain. And uh, now it's going to be unmanageable to pay attention to pain, it's going to overwhelm me and take over. And that's a, actually a legitimate response. And for that, uh, what I would say to that person, this imaginary person, yeah. is the practice of titration. Uh, titration is a very important part of somatic therapy, in which case um, we really, really notice the actual nervous system of the uh, client. It's not, there's no ideal. We're not trying to fit an ideal. We're trying to listen to the exact nervous system of the client. So if going inside causes overwhelm, well, that's not helpful. We don't mm-hmm. want to overwhelm you by when you notice your deep uh, sadness or deep fear and, and abandonment or whatever it is. And so what we can learn to notice is when overwhelm shows up uh, and then we would stop paying attention. Mm-hmm. We'd start uh, at that moment paying attention to something that feels good. Mm-hmm. So I would say, okay, that's good. We did it. So congratulations. We spent some time there. And now let's pay attention to the parts of you that feel connected or um, happy or proud, even if it's just a little teeny bit. Mm-hmm. But so we can go back and forth. This going back and forth from really resourced, connected feeling spaces to uh, really disconnected, painful spaces builds our capacity to uh, hold our own feelings. And the 
benefit of that, I would say to this person, is then you become actually more capable. So we're not spilling out or acting out onto the people around us that we want care from, thereby not being able to be provided care. You can't, we're, we're so funny in our society, like we were, it's not our fault. It's the world we dropped into, this insane world. But we actually expect people to care for us when we are attacking them. And so we're attacking our partner. We're defending our partner. We're defending our stance. That's a war stance. And the only thing that happens in war, in battle, is hurt. Both people are hurt. There, there's no possibility of being cared for there. And so it's so sad to see us as very beautiful. We're all so deeply, profoundly beautiful. And yet we're in these dysfunctional uh, care spaces, expecting care from somebody that we're attacking or defending from. So it's all just a result of, uh, that's an oversimplification. I already see what I'm saying, but I'll oh. say it anyway. <laughs> okay. What is it? Do you, do you think it's, uh, it's just uh, all a result of mismanaged and inappropriate relationships? Yeah, <laughs> I would say that. And that, that, that has been going on for, yeah, for a long for, time. Yeah, I, potentially, you know, history is very distorted. I don't use history as a gauge because I, I don't, history is written by the winners. Mm. And so it's very distorted. But I, I do feel like we've been in a fight flight response and freeze response almost predominantly. It, it, the reason that we can even do therapy nowadays is because our lives have become comfortable enough to notice what happened to us mm -hmm. ancestrally and to really go, oh, shit. <laughs> oh, I swear. Is that okay? Mm -hmm. That's okay. Uh, yeah. This, this is awful. It is very painful here. We're right. able to slow down and notice. And uh, I, I find that, you know, admirable the way our ancestors survived and and still we are here and and the, the love that i was offered from my disconnected grandparents like now that i realize where they came from i'm like wow that was basically miraculous that you were even able to do that and so our generations are much more uh physically comfortable so we're able to look at our deeper reactions that have been programmed through war and torture and genocide do you believe forever. in that thing that the hard times create tough people and easy times create weak people i i notice it yeah but if but the, it's, it's if a the bit easy simplistic time, it is a bit but um if it's easy times create weak people but at the same time easy times allow us to be more reflecting on ourselves and generally the the whole well that's ideal and i do i do uh i feel like I'm taking advantage of that by doing this work. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people in the easy times are uh, in are still in a lot of pain. And we're using the easy times societally to indulge in uh, dopamine stuff mm -hmm. like uh, alcohol, Pleasure. partying, hedonism, porn, mm -hmm. all these spaces that are, uh, you know, short term rush long term just pain <laughs> oh so i i that was kind of a run around of that uh yeah that commentary of hard times mm -hmm. but I, i'm trying to use those simplistic ways that we notice each other and and take the value of them but it's everything is more complex I feel like the statement like that can be taken simplistically and treated as such. Yeah. And we're like, oh, yeah, 
I really resonate with that one, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, fuck, it's too easy right now. We need mm -hmm. to bring up more challenging stuff and then that will make us tougher humans, more resilient. And then therefore we're going to build a better society and da, 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 da. But also you can take it apart and just really consider all sorts of different options there. It's like, okay, well, what, what is it that the easy times bring into the table? Yeah, I, I do feel like there's value in exploring that statement. The, the, the sadness I feel in observing... Um, just uh, being a human is that we lack or we need to develop our capacity to observe each other in complex ways mm -hmm. instead of uh, hiding in that ideology is wrong and mine, my observation of this is right. Mm -hmm. it, it, I actually challenged myself about this recently uh, exploring, you know, I've always been a very, uh, sexually you know i'm liberated and mm -hmm. i've come from polyamorous relationship spaces that uh you know i really stood by sexual freedom and mm -hmm. I, I looked at it like that is a great value and in the recent years for the last four years i and it started with me challenging myself to listen to pro-lifers mm -hmm. and it was really really difficult i felt very sick about it because I had to explore the idea that I had cut them off and refused to consider that they're not absolutely insane, that mm -hmm. there might be some value to what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And it took me a while. It was like three podcasts in and it was torturous, but then it created an intense sense of relief to consider pro-lifers as uh, compassionate humans that just had a different perspective of what compassion looks like mm -hmm. and that there and then all of a sudden it just dawned on me how bizarre that i had cut them off as being just crazy mm -hmm. when what they're wanting to do is to inspire people not to destroy life like that's going on in their bodies mm -hmm. they, that they're really passionate about that mm -hmm. and i was like that's weird it's interesting that i had considered that and just, I hadn't actually thought about it very much. I was just so pro-choice that I hadn't thought about it. Mm -hmm. And so when I listened to them and I, I heard their conviction, my mind opened up. Mm -hmm. And I, I now sit squarely in the middle of the complexity of we live in a world that is very hypersexualized. And so the, the uh, tragedy of abortion is a real thing that needs to be considered. It's a serious abuse. It's, it's a serious experience. And the conviction around it not being allowed is it's coming from some place that has some care attached to it mm -hmm. that I hadn't been able to consider before. Like the care that um, are that, you, but we don't have the community structure nowadays mm -hmm. to support the idealism. And that's all very sad. And so what happened in my mind when I was listening to the pro-lifers is I just resigned to being and noticing that this is very sad and complex mm -hmm. and that there isn't just an answer and a way to go that will get rid of the sadness. It's sad what uh -huh. we're all going through together. And so I would, if I could give a gift to people, it would be that we develop the capacity, which I do think somatic experiencing provides, mm -hmm. can provide, yeah. to notice each other in more complex ways, to literally open up our mind. That reminds me actually, mm -hmm. when we're in fight and flight, mm -hmm we actually lose the physical ability to hear complexly. Our hearing becomes targeted. Mm -hmm. So we can't hear complexly. 
I'm going to break you for a second. And, wait, wait, wait no, let me okay. finish the whole thought, yeah. because it also happens in the opposite, in the dorsal shutdown. Mm-hmm. We stop being able to hear. Mm-hmm. So unless we listen to our, you know, in air quotes, opponent belief systems from a regulated place, we won't even be able to hear them anyway. Mm-hmm. So we won't even be able to teach them because we can't hear them. Mm-hmm. And they won't be able to teach us because we can't hear them, like vice versa. So back at you. <laughs> When I first started fighting competitively, yeah, what you experience at the beginning when you're in the ring with somebody, and it's a known fact, by the way, by people who've done it for a long time, that there is no more intense athletic feat than fighting another person. Because you put yourself in a fighting mode. Mm-hmm. On purpose. Uh huh. And you. yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'm just trying to let it sink in. You, yes, know? No, please. you put yourself in a fight or flight mode on purpose by choosing fight. Right. right. Okay. And the first experiences you have is that nothing around you exists. When you see your opponent on the ring, and it could be 40,000 people, which never will be when you first time starting to fight. It will be small crowd usually, or just coaches looking or somebody. Right. But you see nothing. Wow. There is no, like I would, if I was a novice fighter and I trying to fight you right now, I would not be able to see that plant behind you or the chair or anything here. Just you're so focused. And I wonder if that's the same thing. It seems like it's the same thing, but yeah. it's way more apparent. But now what happens with time, you put yourself in the fight mode and you see everything and hear everything around you. Oh. But you're still in the fight. And so you teach yourself to do that over time. That's yeah. a purposeful thing you're teaching yourself. Yeah. Oh, yep. Yeah, that's a great uh, example of Does it what seem I'm like it's a about. good example to teach yourself to not be in there though? Oh, I'm not teaching people not to be in fight or flight mode that's impossible oh to be coherent more yeah while you're in it no it's impossible we are animal bodies right. and if you are feeling threatened you do not get to choose that you're not that the fight mode you don't get to say oh I, i'm not going to see this as scary your really? animal no? body no that's impossible and so i'd like to speak to that actually because mm-hmm. that's often what is brought to me in therapy the conversation will be something like i really want to stop reacting mm-hmm. to my partner yeah I want to be calm whenever they threaten me. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, well, good luck. That's impossible. Mm-hmm. And let's start with facing that that's impossible. If somebody attacks an animal, they go, thank God that we go into defense. Good. Mm-hmm. You don't want to get rid of your defenses. You don't want to get rid of your boundaries. You don't want to get rid of your no. Because that's basically what's happening. When your partner says something that you find threatening, That's a no. Mm -hmm. So the capacity that we're looking for is what you're saying, is the capacity to notice and feel, oh, my partner said that thing. I'm noticing that I'm going into a fight response because I've basically kind of even memorized my own inner sensation dialogue. Like I've memorized mine. When I go into fight response, my energy gets really like fast paced and fuzzy. It goes up into my heart and it funnels out to the top of my head. And I just, I look like a tornado to myself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Poor Simon. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) 
But because I've memorized it and I bring it up on purpose, so I sit in meditation and I go back to the fight we had and I go, okay, what was happening? And I communicate with it. I can see more of a 360. Mm -hmm. And so over time, we've been together for many years and I've been given permission to divulge our secrets. (laughs) Um, Over the years, we have definitely developed the capacity to see each other more from a 360 place when we are defending. And so our fights have become much better. And they're actually, so we, because we kind of know the formula of how to move to resolution, which would be a calm nervous system that can hear and we can take the time to hear each other back and forth until there is an understanding relief for the nervous system. And now we know how to care for each other better, but there is no way, it, and I'm going to stand by this, it's absolutely impossible to get rid of the fight-flight uh, freeze response. That is something that happens to the animal that you are in. <laughs> yeah we're in an animal isn't that sweet it's animal abuse i swear to try and make us not an animal to treat us to treat well, our own it's self interesting badly. because if you think about it again from my perspective is what happens over time when you start noticing everything around you while being in that mode is you'll become a better fighter yeah that's right so i do feel like i'm a better fighter right yeah but it's fighting, so we just need to, what you're saying is we need to embrace the fight. Um, so And become good at it, but by good, yeah. not like who wins, but how to do it more gracefully. Yes, I mean, there, uh, the win and lose situation is not really a part of the dialogue. It's more the acceptance and understanding of all the... this truth. What? That the winning or losing is not the point. No. But it's so obvious too. I, I would dare say, majority of people think that way. It's yeah, about well, winning um, or losing. Yeah, I, I, in my opinion, uh, or, or programs to think that way by you know the f- people invested in keeping us fighting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know the war machine. <laughs> so, yeah. So at the same time, it seems like the trends, especially in education, kind of went that way. There was no. Um, no emphasis on winning like kids are getting 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 prizes just for participation right right? and i bet you that's where it comes from from that intention but if we take away from what intention from intention to to uh, that winning or losing mindset to get eradicate that a little bit okay you know we still uh, glorify competitive athleticism right but on a school system level like in school what kids Mm -hmm. do they don't you know you don't get high grades Right? You don't anymore at school. Oh. Higher and lower grades. That's been completely eliminated. Wow, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. How you how your how you progress through the education system is basically saying whether you're um, uh, excelling mm-hmm. at whatever is being brought to the table by the teacher, mm-hmm. or you're say uh, approaching the skill. You know, oh. those are the words used to describe. Oh, interesting. Right? It is interesting, and I think it's. It has a great intention with it at the same time. But the reality is, like you say, and you say yourself, there is, it's impossible to get rid of that reactionism in the relationships. So what it set, that does it set up the kids for failure then when they're going to the adult life, when they don't know how to deal mm, with the fact yeah. that there is, 
you know, there is there is that kind of relationship between anybody on every two people. It's possible. Mm. And also on a social level. Right. Mm -hmm. So you need to be able how to navigate through that fight or flight response. Yes. But what you are taught really mm -hmm. is how to just not worry about winning or losing, you know. Yeah. Um, I you, when you back to the uh, comfort makes weak mm. people. Yeah. I, I do think that there's a lot of going on in our culture that is training. And I, I don't know you, this is the first I'm hearing about what you're saying, mm -hmm. but uh, in my observation, there is a lot of conversation around keeping children from feeling uncomfortable, mm -hmm. which is just red flag, like warning, warning, <laughs> telling children that being in a body is meant to be comfortable is absolutely not true. <laughs> it's not true well, well, that you're meant to be yeah. comfortable. You're that. That's not why we're here. We're here to experience. Is ever a goal of any sort? Why was well, there is one part of life where the comfort is a goal? There is one part, or there are some parts. Like for instance, comfort. Uh, when I am with my family, and we create spaces of comfort, that is the goal of for us to slow down and relax together. You know, like biblically, that would have been Sunday. <laughs> yeah but yeah. that's a great example but I that's mean. not the rest of the week yeah but that's not even not even then i know exactly what you mean you want to be comfortable in, with your family but the fact that you are comfortable should not depend on the on the family right sure Whether i'm not totally catching the analogy here because I, no no because you're saying that you know there is times in life when you should feel comfortable no that we're creating comfort we, we're like looking to do that yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. possible to experience some comfort there yeah but, but even in that space on sunday with the family yeah family systems are not comfortable even on the sunday back in the biblical days we're I, sitting around with people that we feel very uncomfortable around exactly and but we have the to, fact that we're comfortable in this uncomfortable situation mm -hmm. that is the point my uh like i don't know when i when i talk to people about just being at the gym and doing all this stuff i often i'll often say um the last thing you're here for is comfort mm -hmm. you know somebody's like but it's more comfortable that way like but that's not why you're here you mm -hmm. know that's kind of the training that you do mm -hmm. like if you were coming here to train being comfortable that doesn't even make sense that's a great you analogy know? because at the same time people often hurt themselves doing physical things because they weren't listening to a level of alignment yeah. in their bodies that was more comfortable if you're going to put that on that scale mm -hmm. so this would be i'm relating this back to my yeah. job yeah. the somatic observation of being able to attune attune to the appropriate level of discomfort and what is a warning signal being able to connect with what is a warning signal i'm in danger versus what is a, a natural uh like flight response to challenge or uncomfort mm -hmm. that needs care and encouragement so you have an elder encouraging a child to move into what is uncomfortable like get on that bike yes it is uncomfortable when you fall off it is mm -hmm. but the option is you don't learn how to ride a bike and you're more comfortable mm -hmm. or you get on the bike, fall a few times, and then eventually show up like your cousin over there, mm -hmm. like doing Papa Wheelies. Yeah. But you don't get to have the Papa Wheelies without the discomfort. And, you know, that kind of analogy there. And so, yeah, I do feel like um, I often tell my clients because they'll wonder, like, why am I doing this again? You know, sometimes when it's really painful. Mm -hmm. um, 
I'll say, uh, you know, uh, something that I got from my counseling uh, training, one of the taglines that stuck in my head like a tattoo. Uh, You're not here to feel better. You're here to get better at feeling. Mm -hmm. And so that that feels like it goes together. Whereas the school system analogy that I'm new to, that Mm -hmm. you're sharing with me right now, sounds like the goal is to feel better. Oh, we want you to feel better. We want you to feel better. But that's impossible. You're not going to have, uh, you're not going to feel better in this life as a, you know, we're always moving to more and more challenge. That's how we grow. And that's very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So the option is atrophy and apparent comfort, yes. <laughs> but it's not comfortable. So it's a lie because it's not comfortable not to move. It's not comfortable to be safe all the time. We're here to grow like a plant. Mm-hmm. Like we have to stretch out. And so it, it is interesting that, the psychology of comfort has turned um, well, turned that tide. Yeah, well, it's fascinating. I, yeah, and it goes, you know, and it kind of touches on all the different spheres of the social life, right? And then what we're experiencing right now, and uh, that's a tricky one to say. There's a lot of people that would disagree, I guess. But people who believe in that way of society carrying on, right? Who design our current education system, uh-huh. right? It's like, okay, well, this is a better way to go because it doesn't put kids in that kind of achievement-driven uh, environment and doesn't make them so uh, competitive, you know, and right. it eliminates that, that, that part from their experience. Mm-hmm. They believe it's the right thing to do. Yeah. And they've been very successful defending that and convincing people that it is the right way to do. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, our society has never been more sick, both physically and mentally. Mm-hmm. I, I, I hear that. So this would be another time where our capacity to think complexly together is probably, I, I don't know this this uh, space you're talking about. I don't have mm-hmm. kids, mm-hmm. so I'm not right there in the thick mm-hmm. of it as you are. But you're comprehending what I'm saying. I am, yeah. and uh, I think it's another example of... Uh, this is the right way and this is the wrong way instead of uh, being able to consider in a complex way the uh, because there is some loveliness to it uh, to um, encouraging from a gentler perspective like uh, the analogy or the imagery that's coming to me is like an old school man saying like get her done kid what are you piece of shit and slapping them or whatever to you know, show them how hard life is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the, that there could have been some connection there and the child might have felt less debilitated in other areas of their psyche, even if they did accomplish what dad had set out to do. Mm-hmm. If dad had said the same things, like, okay, nope, no choice here. You're, you're, you have to participate. Mm-hmm. But from a more uh, connected, like less... Uh, threatening place so it feels like there's a middle ground there like a the balance swing on the pendulum is going too far to one side Mm -hmm. and not considering the wisdom of the other side which you know is is happening all over the place on the planet right now it's not the moderation yeah and when i'm observing it it's like a pendulum swing because we're, we're never in balance. Mm-hmm. Balance is never actually achieved. We're always moving like a, um, 
like side to side, oh, a little too much of this, oh, a little too much of that, oh, a little too much chips, oh, a little too much exercise, oh, a little too much, you know, we're moving. Mm -hmm. But when we swing in reaction to the other side, we end up way over and then not seeing the, the benefits of the opposite. And that takes complex feeling, thinking spaces to which I am. Um, I really love it. I, from a spiritual perspective, I like to think that what is happening to us uh, is we're learning to see the intimate, complex lovability of each person. Mm-hmm. How like how amazing is that to, to know, oh, this person came from a war-torn country and, mm-hmm. and this is why they're they're moving through the world like this. And even though I don't agree with it necessarily from my, you know, suburban brat-raised perspective... I would like to develop the capacity to feel how their experience and and what they're coming at it from, where they're coming at it from makes sense. It's not insanely ununderstandable, but I have to do that on purpose. I have to put myself in their shoes and on purpose feel where they're coming from. And then the benefit of that is that if I want to warn that person about some place they're going that seems like warning warning detriment mm-hmm. is going to occur from the extreme that you're mm-hmm. um participating from they can hear me when i actually empathize with them and tell them that they're not crazy that they make sense mm-hmm. then they can actually hear me mm-hmm. the other side you know swinging so hard like oh that's just so crazy you're just so left wing you're just so right wing mm-hmm. whatever these wings are you, you can't hear each other anyway so if you're trying to affect change, you're not going to. People are ears and back to, they physically shut down. They, we can't hear each other when we're in that space. So I like to think that as we evolve, we develop the complexity to see each other with the extremely intimate, benevolent understanding that, you know, in, in my experience, I'm a spiritual God type person, mm-hmm. that how I, I, feel that God is seeing us all as blessed children of life, of creator, and that we make sense. Each and every one of us makes sense to creator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, 100%. You, can, you, can you be a, a spiritual and atheist? Oh, that's so funny you should say that. That was another one of my mind opening, uh, challenging myself to listen to atheists yeah. because I've always been very spiritual. Since I was small, my atheist parents, they're generally atheists. They wouldn't call themselves that, but they're not in any way interested in spirituality. And uh, they gave birth to me, which was shocking to them because since I was four years old is the first time I remember just obsessively trying to talk to my mom about God Mm -hmm. and her being like, oh, what's this? And it did not diminish. It got stronger and stronger and stronger. So much so my poor family just had no, didn't know what to do with me. I had some really intense spiritual uh, like out of body alignment, like miraculous experiences when I was little, mm-hmm. that my mom just had no idea what to do with me. And so I've always been so uh, interested and um, drawn to the divine spirituality. Um, but listening to atheists was one of those challenges where it's like, I'm going to listen to this and see it as a part of God mm-hmm. to see what is the godly benefit to feeling that God doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. And it was really helpful to me. Okay. So what was your takeaway? It was just that, well, what it ended up doing was Mm -hmm. just facing a nihilism or something like facing that I, 
that I don't matter as much as the preciousness that is afforded when I pay attention to mm. what I refer to as God or spirit and just really facing that space. I noticed that as a skill. I was like, oh, that's a skill that I notice is lacking in the more, you know, woo-woo spiritual spaces where everything is very like, no, everything's good. And God, you know, like all of this, that if those people just spent some time, which I did to myself, which I was glad I did, observing, you know, you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and just feeling that, you don't know. Like, oh, okay. So in answer to that question, I, yeah, that was my observation. But, but I don't know. Can you know. be spiritual and atheist at the same time? I don't know. I'd have to ask someone who is spiritual, spiritual and atheist, atheist because I'm not. But can you imagine that being a thing? I can imagine that, oh, yes, I can actually. So I often say this in my practice. So some of my intake questions are, what, what are you guided by? Mm -hmm. What is your higher power that guides you? Because you are just a human you're a measly little human you can't know everything what helps you know that you have something that is guiding you and i give them some references so if they don't say it right away they don't know what i'm saying i say well nature could be a guide mm -hmm. uh love just the state of love can be a guide and so in that way if you're guided by truly benevolent true love that is a very spiritual space yeah so, or um so that might be an answer to your question. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, to me, I don't know. It, to me, it feels the, the first time I said it to myself or I heard it, somebody proclaimed themselves be that. It's an oxymoron in my head. Oh. You know, so I'm like judging it right away. It's like, oh, yeah, no, that doesn't make sense. How can you take a spiritual space or, a, or feel that you're a spiritual being without acknowledging the higher power? You know, it's and so that I would ask that person. Yeah. So what is it that you're spiritual about? Like, what is your what are you guided by? So how I'd ask that. And so, and, and I'm going back to the atheists. I think it's just it, it just fills in the same um, uh, the same reality of comfort, of seeking comfort. It's too uncomfortable to acknowledge that there is a higher being power but then the atheists are saying to us spiritual types yeah. it's too uncomfortable for you to face that you don't okay. matter to anybody <laughs> that you don't matter to some okay. higher power uh, yeah that's yeah. a good one and then it brings that without perfectly actually tie in with my next question that i had uh curious about your thoughts i asked that several people before in the episodes about the the universal good the universal goodness that we all have yeah as humans absolutely you're a firm believer in that absolutely everybody even if they don't know they do know on some level what is good and therefore they know what isn't good um i wouldn't put it in those simplistic terms of good and what is not good be you know, because it's very dualistic and relative here. Yeah. I would put it more to that you were born into an insane asylum. The way that the system of our world thinks and behaves is based on well, very cruel, um, like uh, not loving. It's not. It's not based on love. Mm -hmm. the way that we're taught to behave. And this has been happening for a long time. 
Um, and it's very hoarding that, that, that cruel, insane asylum is based on hoarding. And so, uh, I would say that everybody was born here and has a divine innocence and uh, the way that their child self, when they're children, the way that we cope with the insane asylum shows up differently for each person. And some people gravitate as children to um, mimicking the abusive, intimidating behavior of the of their elders, the adults, their older siblings. They, mm -hmm. they imitate it yeah. in order to feel safe. That's their self-preservation technique. Other people like me, mm -hmm. I, I've never really been very good at being a bully or mean mm -hmm. <laughs> because I had uh, I lived with a bully, my brother. So mm -hmm. I didn't have space to learn how to do that. Mm -hmm. I was just really just shit on victim mentality mm -hmm. of, and so that's how I learned to cope was cowering and diminishing myself. That was my protective. So I was more in the shutdown, whereas my brother learned how to be the big bully of the neighborhood. I mean, actually he was just bullying me. He was the star of the neighborhood actually mm -hmm. all my childhood. So <laughs> in any case, each person, we can go back to when they were small and what their coping strategies were. <laughs> and they don't choose them. Little kids don't go, you know what? I'm going to choose the bully mm -hmm. as opposed to the uh, shutdown victim. Mm -hmm. They just do it. Mm -hmm. And they get a dopamine rush when it works. Mm -hmm. When you shit on your little brother like your dad is shitting on you and you're like, oh, now I'm the big man here. Yeah, yeah. That charge is like a drug and the child doesn't know that. They just keep doing it because it works from an animal perspective. Mm -hmm. And the little brother doesn't have a choice. He has to be the one that cowers. And then that works. And then they develop, it works enough, you know? And so then they develop those spaces. And so our world is based, everybody has that. You can track it back to the protective techniques that you were taught in the insane asylum of your family system, of the world at large, to cope. And so what I like to note, and that's why I love my job so much, because sitting intimately with people's psyches, someone can walk in the room and I'd be like, oh, this guy. My ego will judge them as like, oh, I know where this guy comes from. This guy's an asshole. And I'll know that, nope, I'm going to learn. I'm going to learn who this person actually is. And every single time I am like, oh, you poor thing, you poor child. And so even the most, you know, awful folks these evil people that we're looking at that are doing and committing evil acts, they come from family systems where you had no choice but to bully. There, there's no option mm -hmm. in those big, huge mafia family systems. You don't get to choose whether you're actually benevolent. Mm -hmm. You don't get to choose that. And so the, my answer to that question would be more, uh, it's, a, it's actually a, a line that I found in one of my uh, personal medicine journeys um, in the medicine journey, I was observing, I was lying on a table in the tropics and these very simply dressed kind of angelic beings laid me down on this table and they all gathered around me and they just asked me to tell my story. And as I was telling the story of, you know, why I suck and why I'm in so much pain, why I'm so mean or why I'm all this, they just were petting my body saying, oh, that makes sense. Oh, that makes sense. And they just kept saying that over and over again. 
And because the unraveling of my story was being met with understanding, it was being released from my body. Mm-hmm. The, the understanding that I'm not just a, you know, a loser, that it makes sense that I view myself that way, or I'm not just a bully. It makes sense that I view myself that way, or that what happened that created that circumstance makes sense. Mm-hmm. It released it. And that's uh, tracking back to the complexity that we lack in observing each other, that if we really observed each other and really wanted to listen, unfortunately for our protective parts that don't want to understand each other, it would make sense. And we would say, oh, Trump supporter, oh, it makes sense. Or, oh, you know, liberal, whatever, mm-hmm. blue-haired, whatever. Oh, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, we would really get it that it isn't. And so that's what I mean by this godly perspective of each other where we we open up our hearts and our minds to to really feel where we came from and i do believe and this is a guess because i haven't met every single person ever (laughs) but i do believe that um deviance deviant behavior uh is an addictive response to the the trauma place we're in Mm -hmm. and you can get more and more and more deviant and you can lose connection with conscience almost entirely. And those people are very scary. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I'm suspicious that they came from that. Like when they were babies, that they were born deviant, evil born babies. Evil. Yeah, I, I have a suspicion. And where I tend to lie is that they lack, they lack understanding. Mm-hmm. And that is not giving them excuse. By the time you're a deviant, you, you're, you're not well and you shouldn't be uh, milling about. Yeah. <laughs> if you're not going to connect with compassion, then you know. Even, so do you yeah. think it does it have anything to do with moral compass? Do you think that moral compass is a thing then? Oh, I I do feel that moral compass is because a thing. that's kind of yeah. I I realize that this kind that's of that's what I'm speaking to. Yeah. I'm just speaking to it in a complex way that just isn't way on I, off right wrong left right you know. The the way I understand moral compass mm-hmm. is very physical in the sense like I just can imagine like a regular compass and how the needle goes. <laughs> You know, it is and physical, then, and then north is good. It's in your body. And then south is bad. Yeah, or flipping or whichever way. One is this, and one is that. Right. So what if what if Milan, you and I are talking about something, and it's a conflict between us, and in your compass you feel this is the somatic work I'm bringing in again. You feel the sensation mm-hmm. of repulsion to what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. You're like, no, I don't like that. That's a, my moral compass says that what you're saying is awful Mm -hmm. and that you put up that boundary you can feel it in your body and then you speak to it Mm -hmm. you say absolutely not and if we were in what i would say is uh, the space of seeing each other like god i would assume that your boundary makes sense and so if i wanted to be heard by you and i wanted you to hear me we wanted to hear each other i would have to say Tell me about that. Well, that's what I was going to just say. I would say why first. I wouldn't say what you're saying is crazy or something. Well, you might. You might because it might actually be that threatening to you. It might actually. No. Are you trying to tell me that there are things in this world that you don't find immediately repulsive that you have a strong no about in your compass? Yes. And I consider them being bad. Oh. But. But at the same time, my, my reaction to that observation is... Why is it that this is happening? Great. Yeah. I'm glad that you're wanting to know where it yeah. comes from. <laughs> yeah, but but <laughs> that's that's what I'm saying. 
So we agree. That doesn't change the fact that within me, I know whether it's bad or not. It might. Before I even think about it. It might change it, actually. And so this I notice when um, I'm fighting with my partner. He'll do something and I'll have an immediate no. That is not going to get, you shall not pass. Mm -hmm. And because we've developed these skills, I say that to him very clearly. And he says his opposing very clear no back at me. Mm -hmm. And then we say, all right, thank you for hearing me. Because the when we hear each other's no's and it doesn't shut us down, we stay curious. What can end up happening is that I understand his request that I had a no to. And then my no might, it might stay. Mm-hmm. It might in all of the in, in investigation, I might go, yeah, no, I, I, it's still a hard no for me. But often, actually, more often, when he, when we're able to dialogue what our boundaries are saying, the boundaries lose the need to be so strong. And then it feels more like a compromising space shows up that includes both of our yeses and both of our noes. So curiosity. Yeah, curiosity is my and, favorite word. Yeah, so, <laughs> so um, having said that, people do this thing when they um, they will show curiosity about your statement and through their questioning they'll suggest possible motivation that you've had to say that yes they do that why because they're asking what's that representation of it's just they're telling their story they're saying what they're noticing yeah but in a way that's People do it in a very pretty contemplative way often. Yeah, that's their... That they feel like they know better why you're saying things you're saying. Well, they probably do feel like they know better. So it's up to me if I'm being communicated with somebody who is... So what is, con- what is the goal of doing that? The goal of them? Mm-hmm. What what goal do they have to do that? They're, they're trying to express that they clearly have a strong boundary around what you're saying and it is repulsive to them. And they have a story about it. So if I want to be in connection with that person, I need to get curious about their strong boundary and their story. And I need to have the capacity to advocate for my story. And that curiosity, if you bring in curiosity into conflict, you'll disarm each other. You'll, you'll realize that you actually want to care for each other. And, mm-hmm. and you'll, you'll relax and you'll learn to, you'll be able to think more complexly about each other's strong boundaries. So imagine the situation where I'm like, I'm saying... Um, how about, or you say to Simon, I'll use you guys. <laughs> Simon, let's hang out, you know, let's have a, let's spend some time together. Tomorrow. Who's saying this? You are. You are. You're I saying am. that okay, yeah. to Simon. Right. It's like, Simon, let's, uh, let's hang out tomorrow night. And then Simon says, why tomorrow night? We normally hang out the following day. Is it because you've planned something on that day, but... You don't want to tell me and you kind of trying to play this like, you know, you, you're thinking ahead, but really you're motivated by your own, your own benefit. That's, that's fine. What's wrong yeah. with that? What's wrong with him being motivated by his own benefit? No, no, no. You are. You saying one. Well, we commu- both are. You say one communicate to him. You you portraying something, a picture. It's like, oh, I really want, just want us to hang out tonight. But you... But you exclude your motivation behind it. It's like well, I would that be open saying, way would be like, hey, Simon, yeah. Thursday doesn't work for me. 
you know so that would be better would, yeah like i'm just asking wouldn't that be a better way to go about those things sure and right. if i noticed that he was withholding that information it would be my curious job to uh wonder why like what are you afraid of is there a fear that you have of telling me up front what your self-preserving motivation is because there's nothing wrong with having self-motivation of course that everything is self-motivated so I'd want to be curious of why he kept that a secret for me because mm -hmm. that might say something about me. It might say something that no, but I'm not... No, you're the one keeping a, a secret. You're the initiator and you're the one keeping a secret. Oh, well, then it might say something about him. I'm sorry, I got confused yeah. as who was talking. It might say something about him that I don't feel safe to be transparent. Maybe in the past, which this isn't true about Simon, <laughs> uh, maybe in the past he has been very reactive if I have been self-motivated. So I have childish, child part reacted mm -hmm. by being deceptive. Mm -hmm. And so if he were to ask me in curiosity, I notice you're not being upfront. Is there a reason for it? And I said, well, I'm, I'm scared to tell you the reason, actually. And he said, okay, I'm sorry that you feel scared. Uh, I, I commit to really listening to you. Mm -hmm. And then we'll probably have a conversation where both of us get a little bit scared. But in that dialogue you might notice that he <laughs> this per he brought in calm and curiosity and so that disarms and then we get to hear what's actually going on in a more complex way does that answer the question mm, yeah yeah no it yeah to a to an extent it just seems like when there is whatever the reason the deception is present you know in a conversation maybe it motivates you to certain actions or you're like deceptive um because you feel like you're deceptive to unravel the truth that somebody else is hiding, you know? Okay. Is there, do you think that there is like a justified deception? Uh, well, there's reasons. I, I don't put the term justified necessarily in this, in this yeah, uh, and analogy, that, and I'm but saying there's that, reasons that yeah. people, no, I'm going to answer yeah, yeah, There's sure. reasons that people deceive each other in uh, loving relationships and it, is something that if you want the love to keep growing, that you would get curious. Why, what is happening for you that deception is the only option for you? Mm -hmm. And what about me is also a part of why deception is the only option because we're interrelating. So there's self-responsibility and curiosity on both sides. Mm -hmm. And that's, creates the safety if there's no curiosity about why someone's doing it you know no one can deceive you if you don't on some contractually agree to it and like you agree to being deceived on some uh retrospective you know i can see where i was deceived in my relationships and i can also see how my the way that i uh, have been programmed to look the other way mm -hmm. and to people please made me a willing although ignorant candidate, <laughs> you know, I was like, I'm responsible for that because I'm an adult. It's mm -hmm. my job to notice how I behave. Even as I point out the uh, painful, uh, deceptive, dishonest, like p deception and, and withholding information is a uh, dishonesty. Mm -hmm. People are only ever dishonest when they don't feel safe that their, their truth is going to be met. Mm -hmm. They don't feel like that's possible. They don't feel like there's a fertile garden for their truth so they pick and choose what they're going to say and i also can have malevolent motivations from who from themselves they have motivations that push them to, to no no deception Unless not just be psychopath your motivations are not malevolent they're self-preserving they're protective 
I don't know if there's anyone in my life that is psychopathic. So I assume that everyone is doing their best. And so it's my job to be curious about what their best looks like, which might be repulsive to me. I have people in my life that I don't okay. associate with anymore because their okay, well, best, their okay. self-preserving is, you know, it's not my gem. I find it repulsive. Okay, my boundaries say no to it, but it doesn't mean that they're malevolent. Yeah. They're just preserving in a different way from a different perspective, from a different childhood. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Can we shift this to a, to a broader societal collective um, sure. spectrum? Yeah. Where are we at? I don't know. Where are we at? How much time do we have? Well, I don't have a limit of time, oh, but oh. up to you. Well, usually... I just don't want it to be, we can cut this part out, but I just don't want the podcast to be so long that it's like scary to look at. You know, if there's like a podcast that's like three hours long, no one's going to no. want to listen to it. No. But okay. Well, anyway, that was just my um, protective <laughs> preserving for your podcast that it's, yeah. people want to listen to it and they're no, not no, for sure. shying away it's from, who wants my... to listen to this chick talk for three hours I know. if it's interesting <laughs> people want to talk yeah, okay know. sure they cut this part out yeah <laughs> we're at what are we at one 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 okay um so if we shift it to those to the societal norms and the big say i mean okay that's a straight up question do you think the government has benevolent intentions i think and observe that unfortunately the biggest money makers in our world are very very malevolent and so that would be the drug trade Mm -hmm. the human trade there are 30 million i think slaves on the planet today slavery was never abolished more than ever yeah yeah and so uh, drugs, humans, and weapons. That is the biggest money makers on the planet. And so those are the biggest money makers. They have the most power. They are very much in charge and they are very, very deceptive. I think a part of the main, the fact that most people are very kind and they assume and they project kindness on the highest echelon of world leaders. They project, oh, they're just doing their best. Oh, they're just a whole, oh, it's tough. And that's a that's an unfortunate thing because the truth is that if you're going to be in those positions of power, you only get there in this world where the biggest money makers are drugs, weapons, and humans, that you only get there by being having extremely malevolent practices and to where your uh, conscience has been destroyed like you don't have a conscience reaction you're in the, these people that run things here. It's kind of like a, it's a mafia. We're run mm-hmm. by a mafia. It's very secretive. And so people, when they project like onto, you know, these world leaders, like Obama, what a nice man. He's doing his best. No, o- Obama bombed the shit out of many countries. Oh, Trump, he's terrible. Sure. So is you know, like, Oh, Biden. Oh, he's just an old man. Like we're projecting these very simplistic views onto them of what it's like to be just a hardworking person. But the reality is that these people are highly, highly mafia mentality manipulative in that they never are only what they present to the public. Like Obama is not just the president. He is involved in nefarious things that they of course do not wake up in the morning and tell us about on the news. We do not know what those people are doing, but if you observe this world, you can see with your naked eyes, no matter who you are, it is extremely 
malevolent the practices of the uh, the highest echelons of corporation and government, which is military. And military is a business. It's a business of moving weapons and people. And we've been doing this for eons of time. And these these family systems of control are very old. That being said, and so we have to get used to that. We have to get used to noticing our world leaders as not what they present because they can't present who they are because we wouldn't listen to them if they did that because they're, they're, it's very painful in their family mm-hmm. systems. The malevolence, imagine being a child born into the highest echelon of control, mm-hmm. a hoarding and malevolence. You have no choice. You have no breathing room. Those people are a different type of slave when they're little children. And it's awful that we look up to them from their uh, fake personas that, that they own, that they curate for the public, that we think those things are the truth. They are not presenting the truth of what they do in everyday life to us by any means, not even close. But everyday people in government, they don't know about this because it's been very strategically hidden. It's only been, so I've been studying uh, the hidden agendas of our uh the mafia, the, our world leaders and the military for a really long time, like 20 years. And in the 20 years that I've been studying it, people are waking up to it. And it's very painful. It's very painful to realize just even the storylines of heroism that we were taught, like, oh, the United States was so great. We won World War II. And like all of these storylines of uh, heroism is is a curated, very simplistic version of malevolence on all the sides in the highest power and the poor people the middle class the poor people we're just moved around like chess pieces and we're told stories to move us around and we fall for it because we are kind and we are doing our best and we have no choice (laughs) we're not given a a choice sounds from what you're saying like a very um, apparent example of dualism though meaning meaning there is a benevolent hierarchy uh, people are benevolent at the top of the hierarchy food chain so to speak people and, are benevolent at the hot top. there is a malevolent yeah there it's a trained yeah. malevolence well, though trained malevolence. i don't yeah, know of yes it's yeah, a trained malevolence right? yes and then the fact that the benevolence is so abundant amongst the lower well, it's not so abundant because we mimic them. We're taught to mimic them. We're taught to idolize the royalty, to behave like them. So there's so because earlier you said that there is that you don't think people are malevolent. That once that you, no, no, Milan. I said yeah. it is complex, and if you we were capable of taking the time to understand each other and slow down and listen, we would say that makes sense. Yeah. Even if I had Obama mm-hmm. or whatever, yeah. some world leader, Putin. Yeah. And I sat Putin down and I had, you know, 52 hours of uninterrupted listening and care for them. Mm-hmm. I would go, oh, shit, that makes sense. Right. Holy fuck, it's hard being you. Mm-hmm. <gasps> That's awful. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe you had to go through that. Oh, my gosh, it makes so much sense why you are a warmongering, um, lying, deceptive person. You are in, in extreme levels of self-preservation. Like, being... A, in a mafia of control that trades weapons, humans, and drugs is murderous. Like their lives are constantly at stake. (laughs) They murder each other. They don't just murder the poor people. They murder each other. It's awful. It's awful all around. So I I don't, 
I do want to recognize when the practice of strategically and planning to hurt people, planning to hurt people erodes compassion. It's not just an animal reaction. It's a planned overtime reaction and it erodes the actual brain's capacity to take on uh, the other person's feeling state. It turns the other person into an object. And so that does happen over time. And I feel compassion for that, but also firm boundary that you have gone past the point of no return and you need to be in jail. Mm-hmm. You know, Jeffrey Dahmer. No, <laughs> I don't care how much you're apologizing. No, you can go away because you have gone past the point. And our, unfortunately, in my opinion, our world leaders are Jeffrey Dahmer's. They're mm-hmm. just in suits and we're forced to vote for them. But they also, it makes sense how they became, if I had 52 hours, it would make sense how they became so deviant. I also think that this is happening in the lower classes through uh, porn. Uh, Extense exposure to porn. You know, since I was a kid, it was adult women and, you know, some boobs and Mm -hmm. some airbrushed hairy vaginas. Mm -hmm. And now, I mean... It's extremely violent what children are being exposed to, and that has a deviant effect on the brain that can it cannot be reversed. It's it's very very difficult. I just can't think of it as not intentional, you know. Which is not intentional. The the exposure and then the exposure. The, the, yeah, the exposure of children to porn. Oh, it's very intentional. It's right. malevolent. Yeah. I know, but it's not something that everybody talks about. It's actually been ignored. Most people haven't discovered it yet. Most people in the psyche of everyday people. I just can't imagine. How can you not discover it? I just discovered the extreme. uh, I didn't know about it. I'm not watching porn anymore. So I didn't. I used to. And when I used to watch it, it was getting kind of deviant. And actually the last, I think I was 37 was the last time I watched porn. And I slammed the uh, computer shut because it, I'm learning about human trafficking, mm-hmm. but I have been learning about human trafficking and the sex, uh, the uh, child sex trade for 15 years. I, okay, so let's really, no, it was 10 years at that point when I stopped watching porn, but mm-hmm. I hadn't put it together. How mm-hmm. embarrassing. I feel regret for that. Mm-hmm. But until that moment when I was 37 and I slammed the computer shut because the thought entered my head, I can never truly know that that person I'm viewing is not a slave. I can never know that. And it totally overwhelmed me. And like, I can cry right now because I literally felt extremely traumatized by my own it's ignorance. One of the biggest. Uh, but, uh, but what I'm yeah, saying so, here, so that yeah. you have a little more benevolence for people waking up to the damaging aspects of porn, is that it was sold to us as sexual liberation in response to the church, all the different churches, right. sexual repression. Mm-hmm. That's very unhealthy too. And so in response, we said, yay, we're healed now. We're great. And now it swung to intense abuse of hedonism. Mm-hmm. And so we're just catching the swing and people are just waking up, including me. I only really discovered the absolute atrocious abuse in the porn industry very recently in the last like two years. Before I was like, oh, it's not good. And I had that moment when I was 37, but I didn't get into the storyline of it until about two years ago. And now I've been watching some documentaries on the awful awful situations that um young young people are groomed into um it involves extreme extreme abuse to to babies even 
that's what's happening on Pornhub there and all these different they're they're trading sex yeah, trafficked children is beyond it's, me it's so point. awful this is one of those things that beyond me that actually will provoke my very first question at the beginning of this conversation yeah that, that you need no credit card no proof of id no any sort of security check to access any porn you want mm, so sad you can't even bet if you don't have a credit card in hand that yeah money. and so what you're saying is it's so free it's, it's so free because I, they want i, I don't know this for a fact but i we could look it up if mm-hmm. i was joe rogan i'd have a guy look it up oh right. yeah <laughs> someday <laughs> yeah but anyway so my bet would be that it's one of the the most uh stream like bandwidths like this is the most data it's form yeah, yeah. online from stuff up to it because our generation is the first generation so i am the first generation child of the sexually revolutioned adults so my parents were the first generation that had birth control mm-hmm. and so they thought everything was great now and so i got to look at porn magazines and i i really loved them when i was a kid actually i loved yeah. looking at I thought making love was the coolest thing ever and I couldn't mm-hmm. wait to do it. But I had a very healthy sexual childhood. My parents did nothing to interfere in my sexuality except to protect me. They didn't shame me. I had very, very healthy sexual discovery with my peers. Mm-hmm. There was no interference of the psyche of adults mm-hmm. around me. My, my mom, I think, read me the Birds and the Bees book when I was, How Babies Are Made when I was five. Very sweet book. Mm-hmm. And then she's left me to my own interested devices. She protected me from extreme uh, sexual imagery in movies. And then I think she might have, mom, if you're listening to this, I wonder if this is true. She might have left when I was a teenager, this book in one of her drawers um, that was like making love. And it was just a, a novel with some drawings in it. Maybe she left that there for me to look at, or maybe it was her book and I'm busting her. Sorry, mom. Uh-huh. But I remember looking at that and being like, oh, yeah, this is cool. I, I'm, 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 I can see the love in this. And I'm excited for my body to be able to have that experience with someone that is loving. And so I looked for a loving partner. And I think that's awesome. I have a very, I think I have a very healthy sexuality of exploration. But the way that children are being exposed to extreme levels of fetish and abuse that comes from how disconnected we are. It, it actually has a, so porn gets worse and worse and worse because of the dopamine rush of the brain. Mm-hmm. When you watch porn that's very extreme, you get a high, a very like, <gasps> and it's very addictive. But when you go to watch the same video, that high isn't there. And so this is what's happening to children is they're like, oh, you saw that? Oh, this one, now try this one. And they're mm-hmm. daring each other. You know how mm-hmm. children dare each other? Mm-hmm. And so this, the initiation into sexuality is based on so nothing loving. So first experience is just not even exciting anymore. Then that happens. So just the, what, I mean, how exciting was it when I was a kid to have my first kiss? Like mm-hmm. mind-blowingly exciting. It was such a big deal. You know, oh, I touched a boob. Mm-hmm. Like huge endorphin rush. And now teenagers are going in expecting some pretty intense experiences because mm-hmm. they've been viewing them. Yeah. It's very, 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 very painful. And I'm I'm excited to help parents and, and adults wake up to the protection that is needed. And I'm very sad that this has happened to us all. I, I mean, I do feel like porn distorted my mind. Mm-hmm. I didn't start watching it till a boyfriend introduced it to me when I was 30. 
And before then, I, I realized my mind was quite vanilla. Mm-hmm. And I mourn my mind in its like lovely, innocent vanilla space because it, I do feel like, even though I have not watched porn since that moment when I was 37, mm-hmm. I do feel like it, you know, corrupted it a little bit. And I have to forgive myself and just say, yeah, you're a human here and that's what happened to you. But I would never hurt anyone. And I know that. And I just allow my mind to sort of be forgiven in the safe confines of my relationship with my partner. But mm-hmm. I mourn, I mourn that loss of gentle innocence and i'm not saying that we weren't raping and pillaging back then either i'm not Mm -hmm. you know this is a complex topic no it wasn't that accessible let's be honest i mean no back then you were lucky if you saw one or two people like one or you know you saw like a hundred women in your entire life Mm -hmm. back 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 then Mm -hmm. and now children are seeing thousands of naked women like us on instagram like Mm -hmm. wow We're not like so much information. Okay, you know, I think it would be good to just tackle one thing and then I think we're good to the good. Good. Yeah. That was a I just brief have one, conversation. Yeah, oh. well, I have one more question okay. that I want to address. And then what is it that people can do? Because it seems like wanting to go and follow the route that is becoming a politician, forming that movement and, that, and, and tapping into the power and trying to change something this way is corruptive as my kind of understanding nowadays it's hard to change things that way exactly that you know we're really improving something as an individual what is your opinion on how can individual person like me or you or somebody else can do this well i can speak to other people yeah but but i can speak to my own journey in that question um i ask myself what can i do to extend myself to my community and what can I do? I answer that question. Mm-hmm. And so I do feel like it is, I think Simon was saying this to me. He said, we think we have rights and we stand for our rights. Whereas um, some indigenous culture, he is quoting, which I can't remember the exact mm-hmm. name of them, but the they uh, he heard them say, we don't, heard a representative of that indigenous culture say, we don't have rights, we have obligations. And that's, that's that movement into adulthood where you become that complex caretaker. And so I do feel like we have in the hedonistic response to the comfy life that we have, we've actually become very individually focused and we don't know that we actually have to extend ourselves to the community. And that, that if each person took that on as an obligation, okay, if my if I want to live in a community that I can feel proud of, I have to participate. That's very painful. It's not going to be great. And so when you said, oh, it's corrupt, I'm like, well, everything is corrupt from some perspective. But does that mean that you get to hide? I don't know if the the obligation is... uh, No, I've just looked at this better and worse ways to try and bring about change to the but that's world, that's you know? up to the individual if yeah. everybody no, no, really I, knew it to I, listen to i have an obligation how can i participate mm-hmm. um yeah so i i do ask myself that and i i give myself the gentle but disciplined task of always having something on the horizon that i'm doing for my community um, real real life experiences like i'll tell you one that yeah. i'm doing this year okay. so <laughs> and i haven't <laughs> So this year, I'm noticing that as a dink, do you know what dink means? Mm. Double income, no kids. Mm-hmm. You know what? My partner and I don't mm-hmm. have children, mm-hmm. but I want to live in a community where children can thrive and feel connected. Mm-hmm. And I notice how overwhelming it is to be a parent at this time. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, so overwhelming. 
Um, I have, uh, I donate my presence to my friends who have kids. Uh, there's, and I'm so far I've done it twice, uh, spent a few, like three to four hours cleaning and organizing my friend's house (laughs) because they're overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we have that booked every month until June Mm -hmm. and that's what I'm doing. That's one of the things I'm doing right now. There's other things I'm doing, but that occurred to me as how I can donate to my community. That's one of the ways. Mm -hmm. And so if we ask ourselves individually, what makes sense to me instead of always comparing ourselves to someone else and then saying, well, I don't want to do that. I'm going to shrink. We just ask ourselves, what's, what is my own inner calling to, to reach out and to stress, to stretch for the benevolent purpose of service to my community? Somebody said to me, Oh, no, that's not true. I read it in a book. It was actually a, a Christian mystic uh, from the 60s. She was an old, old woman, and you had to take a cart to get to her house. And she apparently is visited by dead people like pretty much all day. Mm-hmm. Dead people come to her. People travel. You know, this is before the internet. Uh, travel to see her. She doesn't even have a phone so that they can talk to dead people. And she says that she wishes people knew this. You won't care at all about your achievements when you die. The only thing that will matter to you is how you served. And that just oh, struck me because I, I feel for myself that I know that to be true and that my uh, success-driven, uh, you know, individualism-driven s- stuff that I think is so important, I'm like, oh, shit, that won't be important when I'm dead. And so it, it geared me more towards that obligation. How mm-hmm. can I serve? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder if that matters, though. But yeah, you know, that's great. I wish we had time to, I mean, we do have time, but I think it's good for tonight. Maybe we'll do it again one day. Maybe we will. Yeah. I feel like the, the, I feel like that the topic of elders, oh. presence of elders in a society well, we and how we, ch- yeah, well, it's oh, okay. That's a juicy. And I feel like we agree on that. So it would be kind of like, yeah, we're saying the same thing. Right. Yeah. It's important to say that. Yeah, so yeah, no, it's next important time we to want to mention. talk about the ini- oh, we want to talk about the initiation practices that are yeah. missing for our children to be initiated community into mm-hmm. adulthood and how the elders uh, of our communities showing up as important listening leaders yeah. and and that we want to create that. So That's next, time. Yeah, next time. <laughs> Thanks so much. That's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Should we advertise you a bit? Oh, my name is Jane Calm. That's my business name, Jane Calm Counseling. Uh, you can look me up if you want to employ my services. Give me a shot. I also give free consultation calls. So you can call me. Uh, my website is very simple. Jane Calm, C-A-L-M dot com. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. Thank Thanks, you. Jane. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please spare a moment and go to Spotify and rate my show. Also, if you have any feedback and thoughts, please share with me. I always do appreciate when my listeners reach out. Thanks so much.